The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin today with a quote. When you read this book, and in pious recollection of that Holy Father, lift up your souls with ardor in aspiration for the heavenly kingdom. Do not forget to entreat the divine clemency in favor of my littleness. In as far as I may deserve both at present, with singleness of mind to long for and hereafter, in perfect happiness to behold the goodness of our Lord in the land of the living. But also, when I am defunct, pray ye for the redemption of my soul, for I was your friend and faithful servant. End quote. That excerpt is from a book called Life of St. Cuthbert, and the pious and humble author was named Bede. Today, he's more commonly known as the Venerable Bede. Just who was this man, often called the father of English history, and generally acknowledged as one of the foremost, if not the foremost, scholars of the Middle Ages? We talked to author Michelle P. Brown about her book, Bede and the Theory of Everything, today on The History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Today, we explore the Middle Ages with author Michelle P. Brown. That's our main course. And then we'll cap things off with a visit from our old friend, Adrian Edwards, from the British Library. He's spent his life among books. Which one would he choose as his last. So let's get straight to it. Michelle P. Brown, up next. Okay, joining me now is Michelle P. Brown, who is Professor Emerita of Medieval Manuscripts at the University of London. In addition to her numerous books, she's also been the historical consultant and on-screen expert for a number of radio and television programs. She's here today to discuss her book, Bede and the Theory of Everything. Professor Brown, welcome to the History of Literature. Hello, Jack. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners and readers. So I was wondering if you could start with a little bit about your own background. I'm curious how you became interested in medieval history. Okay. Well, I think we're all given our own song to sing. And if you've got an itch about something, you've got to scratch it. And I don't know, for me, it's always been the Middle Ages. And I think that's probably come out of my family background to some extent in that my mother's family came down in the Jarrow Marches, um, Jarrow and Monkwea area, where Bede actually uh, grew up all those centuries earlier. And they walked down in the marches protesting about the poverty in the region and stayed to work on the docks in London. Mm. And then my father came from Ireland and he, his family, again, had had a, a history of deprivation and um, diminishing opportunity in Ireland. And so he, for a while, went off um, around the time of the war, went off to Egypt and then to it was on bomb disposal in Jerusalem for a while. And on his way back through London, he stopped for two nights and met mum and never got any further. <laughs> and, um, and when I was about four. I remember still quite clearly, they took me to the British Museum, which was just the most amazing experience. And one of the things that they beetled off to see with their Irish and Northumbrian backgrounds was Lindisfarne Gospels. 
which was made in a little <sighs> island off of the coast of Northumbria in Bede's time, around 720. And it's possible that Bede had a significant role to play in the making of that, it now turns out. And Dad held me on his shoulders to look down into the Snow White's coffin in which the, the book was displayed. And it just drew me in, absolutely drew me in with sheer wonder and delight. And I remember years later, I went back and looked at my little girl diary. And that was the moment at which I said, I'm not going to be an astronaut now. I'm going to be a librarian. (laughs) (laughs) Did they make that connection for you? Did they say this is part of our history or this is connected to where we come from and this, this has a special meaning for us? Or did you put that together later? Yeah, I think I think you're right, Jack. I could sense that it was something that was meaningful for them. Mm, it was something mm-hmm. that linked them in the same way that all those centuries before their respective peoples had become linked through the creation of incredible monuments of human cultural achievement and belief and ethics. And so all of that. We didn't have much furniture in our house when I was growing up, but they were great autodidacts and we would spend every spare penny buying secondhand books. Mm. <laughs> and so the whole thing was inescapable that I was going to have a life of books and I've been very, very, very blessed in, in being able to spend my working life in that way. Right. Well, who needs furniture if you can sit on the floor and immerse yourself in a book? You forget all about the the deprivations. <laughs> or maybe you could build up, you know, you could have a nice little pile of books that, that would be kind of comfortable to sit on. Yep, that's <laughs> Okay, so in talking about these cultural achievements, it takes us right to bead. I'm I'm going to assume that a lot of people are like me, which is they've heard this name over and over and over, but they don't know exactly who he was. He's kind of, I, I know him more by name than by anything else. So who was the actual Venerable Bede? Okay, so yeah, most people know the Venerable Bede, and of course that's been parodied in, in various contexts as the Venomous Bede. Oh, right. <laughs> um, Venerable is a title accorded by the Catholic Church to those saints who have distinguished themselves particularly by their immense learning. Mm. And B is the only one to have achieved that title from British Isles. And so that's a, a major achievement. But of course, he was acclaimed pretty much as a saint in his own lifetime because sanctity was accorded to those whom people respected for their contribution to their societies in all sorts of different ways. And it's interesting we know about him primarily from Bede. Mm. He's sometimes known as the father of, of English history. And he is the first really, not only in, in Britain, but in the post-Roman world, to really write in a very literary style and to give sort of cause and effect and to link things up rather than composing something that's more sort of a chronicle with yearly records of events. And he tells us about himself in an autobiographical note and through his own voice that comes through so clearly in all of his different writings. He wrote about 40 books for sure and another 20 possibly that scholars have Mm. argued about during the course of his working life. And he tells us in his autobiographical note that at the age of seven, having grown up somewhere between the mouths of the rivers Tyne and Weir, he was given by his kinsmen. He doesn't say his parents, which may mean that he had been orphaned or that he was fostered, but his kinsmen presented him to 
a chap called Benedict Biscop, whom we think he may even have been related to. And their names both occur from an earlier generation as being kingworthy in another Anglo-Saxon kingdom further south called East Anglia. So it may be that they were loosely related and that they came from the upper echelons of the Germanic societies that had carved out territory in the aftermath of the Roman withdrawal from Britain and much of the West. Mm, Okay, so we're in sort of the late 7th and early 8th centuries, I guess, right? And is he speaking English? He's speaking Old English? Is Is he Germanic? How should we picture him? Okay, so this is the anniversary of his birth. He was born, we think, in 673, Mm. and he died in 735. He would have spoken Old English as his everyday language. Coming into the monastery that Benedict Biscop had founded at that time, Monk Weirmouth at the mouth of the River Weir, and coming there, he would have had an incredible education in one of the new style schoolrooms that were being founded in England, working along the lines of the schoolrooms of late antiquity and of the Near East, Byzantium. And he would have learnt Latin as a foreign language. He would have learnt Greek. And we can also tell that Bede had a particular interest in Hebrew names, place names, personal names, and researched a lot about their origins and the correct form of pronunciation, etc. So he became very interested in language. And in fact, he becomes the great pioneer and champion of the use of Old English, his own language, in addition to the lingua sacra, the sacred languages of um, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, as they were perceived in mm-hmm. the ancient world. And he actually advocates the use of English. He says that parish priests, for example, should be allowed to say the Our Father prayer and the creed um, in English because their congregations, and quite frankly, many of um, the priests themselves in those early stages, were not Latinate enough to really be able to understand things adequately in Latin. And it's due to Bede that we have some of the earliest of our English poetry as well. Mm. So what kind of life did he have? Was he basically secluded in a monastery and and living inside amongst uh, a big uh, shelf full of books? Or was he out and about? Was he traveling around? And what do we know about his existence, I guess? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, we know quite a lot because Bede wrote things about the building of, of Monk Wilmot and Jarrow in the lives of the abbots and in his history of the English church and people. And what he tells us basically is that Benedict Biscop, who travelled six times to Rome and Gaul, brought back cartloads of books sopping up the remains of the great libraries of the antique and early Christian world from mm. the wreckage of the Roman Empire in the West and paintings and icons. And they established one of the greatest libraries, or probably the greatest library in the West since those of Rome. And so Bede was going into an incredible new social experiment. These buildings were built in dressed stone in the Roman fashion with beautiful stained glass windows to keep out the draft and to increase the beauty of worship and the visual ability to read text through images and to convey that orally and through artwork to others. But Mm. unlike the central Middle Ages that we normally think of, 13th, 14th century, of having more enclosed orders and the mendicants of friars, 
being the ones who, who would work more widely in society at this early period, whether you came from that sort of Europe-looking Roman type of building and tradition or whether you were looking more to the western seaboard of um, Ireland as uh, Linda's farm, you would still be balancing the active life of service and care for others within the community with the contemplative life of prayer and praise and study. And Reed's a great advocate of both, and it's holding them in, in balance. And they were the only education and health providers for the period. They were humanitarian aid workers in what's often been described as one of the worst periods to live in terms of famine, warfare and disease other than the 14th century in the Black Death and many parts of our world today. Mm. And although Bede had come into the monastery as young as the age of seven, he would have lived in the communal hall. He would have heard the everyday noises and the noises in the night. You didn't have private bedrooms, etc. So he knew about life. He did work with animals, undoubtedly, etc. as well. So it's not a, a, a cloistered life in that sense, but it is, if you like, a privileged retreat from the rigours of the world and, for example, you know, surviving the rigours of your first battle engagements or your first childbearing experiences um, in your teens as, as boys and girls at that time. You were lucky if you survived that and then went on into a middle age, etc. And so what Bede obtained through going in so early and deciding that he wanted to stay within that life was the ability to feed his intellectual curiosity, mm. which extends to sciences as well as faith and, and the humanities. And he's able to actually engage in experimental observation, etc. He's able to be creative and he is able to enjoy the beauty of worship and what he loved best. He says, you know, of all things, my greatest pleasures in life have been reading, writing and teaching. And he's able to do those things and he's able to think and to think deeply with the luxury of this incredible library at his disposal, split across the two monasteries, which were joined. They were unusual. They were a twin monastery. And we think he only ever travelled as far as Holy Island, Lindisfarne, and York, to the north and south respectively, so about 60 miles in each direction. And yet, for example, he's able through his research and through his incredible visual and literary imagination and his excavation of text, he's able to write the holy places, the De Locus Sanctis, which right up until the early 20th century was being used as the best Baedeker type travel guide for mm. people actually visiting the holy places of the Middle East. And yet Bede had never been there, mm. was able to construct this very authentic vision through his excavation of the archaeology of text and of biblical literature. Right. So let's talk about some of the examples of his achievements in order to just make sure listeners understand the breadth of what he was interested in. So what was special about his work with tide tables, for example? <laughs> okay, well, Bede, you can imagine him as a very curious, probably quite troublesome little boy, asking everybody how everything worked as mm -hmm. they were building and, and making, melting the glass, etc. He follows on from one of his great heroes of the past, Pliny the Elder, and writes a sort of encyclopedic on the nature of things. So he's into everything. Mm -hmm. And for him, it's all part of getting into the mind of God. 
you do that through deep prayer, but you also do it through understanding the world because matter matters as well as the spirit. And again, it's holding it um, together in balance. And so he's working on a lot of very, very complicated calculations about the nature of time on which he wrote two big books. And basically, Bede is a computer. He has the job to solve a lot of the controversies between different church parties of his day in the West and the East of actually working out through things like observation of the heavens and of the seasons, etc. Um, he has to, if you like, produce a unified dating system. So it's because of Bede that we're now in the West sitting here in 2023 because he popularizes and works out the finessing of the idea of dating from the birth mm. of Christ and mm-hmm. having a, um, a before and, a, and an after. And so as part of that, his observations of the heavens lead him to start pondering the fact that as a person who lives on the coast and getting about by boat was a, a major way of communicating along these sort of monasteries and other centres, he starts thinking about the nature of tides. Holy Island, for example, is a tidal island, which is governed by the tide coming in and out twice every day and it being cut off. And so he starts realising that the the movements of the tides seem to be related to the phases of the moon. And so from that, he goes on to postulate the gravitational pull of the moon Mm. upon the oceans. So we we don't really get anything quite of that ilk until you get to Galileo. He then writes the first tide timetables. And of course, they're essential today. If you go to Lindisfarne, Holy Island today, you'll often see SUVs stranded on the causeway because people haven't actually adhered to the tide time <laughs> table right. and they're standing <laughs> on the roof of their vehicle. These are important things, you know, they matter. And so it's things like that. It's piecing together the observation of the natural world. But for Bede, recognizing, as indeed many scientists do now, that matter matters, but there are perhaps other dimensions of being that go beyond the purely physical, or be they, as Bede would say, uh, the spiritual dimensions of being. And that's why I've called the book Bede and the Theory of Everything, Mm. because scientists such as Einstein and Stephen Hawking um, both acknowledge the fact that they would like to think that a theory of everything was possible, but that their own research and theories couldn't encompass that largely because they omitted anything other than the physical dimensions and aspects. Whereas Sabid, in his own time and through a glass darkly, he does actually postulate a theory of everything in which the way in which things are, the how of creation, and more importantly or complementarily, the why work together and how human history, our relationship to the rest of the natural world actually relate. And so it is an all-encompassing theory of, if you like, the mind of God. Mm. Now, did others accept that that's what he was doing? We have such a, a strong example in our minds of Galileo and the idea that scientific thinking can be at odds with what the church leaders want from their scholars. And did Bede face that as well? Or did people accept the explanation that you've given, which is that it is a way of knowing God, the mind of God is to understand the universe, even from what might seem like a, a scientific perspective? 
Yeah, I think sometimes our attitudes about the Middle Ages, we focus on attitudes in certain particular periods. And the Middle Ages is a a very, very long time. It's at least a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to think about science being repressed. We tend to think about access to the pagan literatures of antiquity being suppressed. But that isn't so much the case in Bede's time. Mm There's possibly a bit of a wariness about both in terms of obviously being limited understanding of, of how they interact. But for Bede and open-minded thinkers um, of, of his ilk, of which there were others, you would use, for example, anything that was useful from the past, regardless of whether its um, author had, had been pagan or Christian. And so, you know, Pliny, Cicero and, and others are very much part of that sort of intellectual system. On the other hand, when Bede is, is writing manuals, teaching people how to compose good text in terms of grammar and rhetoric, etc., and how to compose poetry, he will quite often substitute quotes from Christian early Christian poets like Paulinus of Nola um, or Sedulius and replace episodes from Virgil that would have been quoted in the sort of schoolroom syllabus text of the past. So he likes to, to give it more of a Christian slant, but he does see it as a continuum part of what went before in actually trying to understand the bigger picture and where you were now and also being open to the fact that that will develop further in different ways in the future. And so I think his scientific observations are very much part of that. The nature of words, the nature of things, the nature of scriptural texts and writing deep, complex, multi-layered interpretative commentaries on biblical texts. All of these things and his human histories hang together. And then he gives them the most wonderful literary and poetic expressions as well. Not everybody got it. There's one occasion when he was entrapped at a dinner party. The coterie of another churchman who had rather different agendas to those of Bede and his monasteries. And the conversation starts taking a rather difficult turn. They're accusing Bede of the heresy of innovation. Mm -hmm. Most of his detractors were not as well read or as erudite as he was. And they didn't know when, for example, he was quoting even Christian authors of the past with whom they were unfamiliar, let alone pagan ones. And so they accuse him of this and he gets his most wonderful revenge. He invents footnotes. And um, basically, whenever he is reliant upon an author of the past, he'll, he'll put their initials in the margins next to his text. And he develops little lightning flash symbols, graphic symbols with his pen, which is something that the schoolmasters of the antique world use. And he will actually, if you like, use them like a yellow magic marker. And they mark passages where he's quoting from other texts. And so he he develops research techniques and graphic apparatus for his text to actually make it more transparent how he's working and how he's reached the conclusions that he has. Right. What a great solution. It seems to really give us a window into who Bede was, that he was basically saying, you're you're not going to you're not keeping up with me. I'm going to do something to to address my critics in advance. Uh, Here we go. I know what you're going to say about this, but I will uh, help you not to say it. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. But also he's a consummate teacher. And of course, devising that and then deploying it is going to help his students yeah. um, a lot in, in their own research and work. Right, too. right. It's a generous kind of attitude to say, I rather than just write this and then argue with you about it and kind of point it out, I will help you to kind of better follow the thinking here, you might not just not be aware of something that it would be helpful to you to be aware of. That's right. I'm following the thought of the path. I mean, when, for example, while Bede is at the monastery, his beloved abbot, Chalfrith, who he sees very much as a father figure, and at one point only he, the young boy, and Chalfrith were alive to actually keep the church services and prayers going because everybody else has been wiped out by plague. And we reckon there were about 600 monks in the two monasteries together at its heyday. So, you know, a lot of people have died. And Bede and Chalfrith then sort of start building it up again. And one of the things that they do is to is to write three incredible single-volume Bibles called the Chalfrith Bibles. Mm. And when the Catholic Church came to print the translation into Latin of the Bible, which itself was vernacular, Bede and Chalfrith and the other scholars and scribes within the monk room of Jarrow Scriptoria, they together reconstruct Jerome's research of a Vulgate Bible. They had to put it together and piece it together. But when the Catholic Church comes to print the Vulgate and the research that scholars um, do in the 16th century to find which is the best model for that, they find that it was the Chalfrith Bible. Mm. It was here and only here could that research be done. And that is mm. an amazing thing. Yeah. And in 716, Chalfrith goes to retire in Rome and he takes with him one of the three big Bibles. It takes four people to lift them. One of them survives intact, the one that he took as a present to the Pope in 716, and that's now in Florence in the Medici Library. It's called mm. the Codex Amalfinus. And it was Bede and his companions who did that work of actually saying, well, we've researched all of this, and this is the best possible version of this massive body of text, which contains the very best and the very worst of what humanity has been and they are taking it back to the historic heartland of the center of the Mediterranean and as an ambassador for the newly established church and churches of these islands. These were the people who were working to get the first laws passed to protect women and children and non-competence in warfare. They were the people who started the abolition movement and slavery and it's remarkable we could do with more visionaries of their ilk today. Mm. Let's take a quick break and return with more about Bede and the Theory of Everything. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we are back. So, Michelle Brown, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Bede's contributions to Old English poetry. And I'm interested in not just what he did, but why he did it. Is it just his natural intellectual curiosity that led him to want to take up Old English poetry for us? Or did he have sort of an agenda that was motivating him? Well, he comes from one of the peoples of the North who, of course, many, many centuries had an incredibly rich and well-disciplined oral culture and oral transmission. And of course, song and verse had been a major part of that for both Germanic and Celtic societies. Bede very much embodies this, a young monk called Cuthbert, who was with Bede taking dictation from him when he could no longer write himself. One of the things that Cuthbert says about Bede was that he was well-versed in and loved the songs of our people. Bede liked pop songs. He mm. recognised that that was a way of reaching a wider audience. He paints picture poems for us throughout his text as well. He's very visual as well as very oral. Probably the most famous piece of Old English that we owe, verse that we owe to him, is a thing called Cairdman's Hymn. Bede writes about the great abbess Hild of Whitby because, of course, women were amongst the most powerful intellectuals of the day too and were making and writing books themselves. Another piece that we know for sure was by Bede, um, which again was recorded by Cuthbert, who was with him at his death in 735 in Jarrow when he sat on the stone-cold floor of his, of, of his cell, his teaching room, we think. He records Bede's death song, and that is a very, very moving thing about how you take stock, if you're wise, in your end days of your life and what you have done and contributed that has caused happiness or pain to others, mm. and that you're mindful of those things as you prepare for the big journey to come. There are other things I wonder about, like the Dream of the Rude, um, which we normally think of as being composed around a thousand, which is when the full developed version of the text appears in, in manuscript form. But it had a pre-life. As early as Bede's time, part of it is carved on a stone cross in the um, southern part of Scotland, the Russell Cross. I wonder, given that the Russell Cross is very much a Northumbrian monument. Its style of carving in the Roman fashion is very much of the sort of thing that Weymouth Jarrow were doing. The cross speaks itself about the ignominy of being felled by enemies yeah. and being forced to become an instrument of torture and bear aloft the blood-drenched body of the saviour of the world and what it's like then to be buried in shame 
until it is um, found by the amateur archaeologist Empress Helena, Emperor Constantine's mother, who clads it in gold and silver and gems so that it becomes the symbol of eternal life. And that sort of visual poetic imagination is something that, again, we can find throughout these works. Right. So a lot of us who I think are struck by this when we read Beowulf, which is that it's pagan, but it's got a kind of Christianity that sneaks in. Mm. Is that also similar in Bede's work with Old English poetry? Is he kind of melding Christianity with kind of a pre-Christian oral tradition? I think in terms of the style and the genre, yes. Although, again, the way in which Bede writes the bits of poetry that we do have, there's not a big body that we've got of his work. But, of course, he's also very influenced by the compositional style of Latin poets. It's more of a hybrid. But, yeah, I once wrote a very unpopular article in which I dared suggest that Beowulf didn't spring fully um, armed from the head of Zeus and that it too might have had an earlier backstory whereby it grows cumulatively and is reworked perhaps at different periods to achieve its fully developed form. But whether or not that's the case, I think if you look at Irish literature at the time, um, some of the great Irish Iron Age materials such as the Toynbo Cooley. These are things that have evidently centuries of circulation orally and which talk about a much earlier pagan past in terms of their archaeology and their artifactual points of reference, but which have been Christianized in places when they've been written down for the first time by Christian monastic scribes. Right. So is the book Bead in the Theory of Everything, is this sort of a compilation of your years and decades of work with Bead, or were you doing new research for this book? Um, it's a bit of both. I've worked a lot on things like the Lindisfarne Gospels and a lot on the manuscript culture of both the Celtic and Anglo-Saxon orbits, and, and I've written a lot and taught a lot on, on more general history, and I've published a lot of books in my time, but a lot of them have been um, academically focused or syllabus books, etc. Mm-hmm. I think what I've allowed myself the luxury of doing this time, having reached that stage of life, is actually writing it in a voice that is perhaps more my own and the way in which, like Bede, I would teach and some of the the different perspectives and giving myself the freedom to actually write about them in in this joined up way. So I hope that what's emerged is something of a slightly different picture of Bede and an ability to actually move out from Bede into a greater appreciation of, of what his society might have been like, not only then, but how it fits into the sliding scale of the verticality of time and the horizontality of space, if you like. Mm, wow. So there is a lot in the book for those of us who are pretty new to bead, and there's uh, also some new discoveries for people who are experienced in bead. I'm wondering if there's any popular misconceptions about bead or about medieval history that your book hopes to correct. <laughs> Okay, well, I think about Bede, that he's a fusty old monk who never went outside the cloister hmm. and didn't engage with the world, and or that he just kept his head down as a scholar. Um, the other thing that I touched on briefly there was at the end of his life, he becomes quite outspoken because he's concerned about the way in which this wonderful new edifice of a Christian society that he's laboring so much to 
create that it's in danger of being torn apart by factionalism. And uh, he's afraid that the development of hierarchical structures and control mechanisms, for example, within the church is going to lead to places like Lindisfarne and the contribution of the Celtic monks being written out of the agenda because, of course, they're supra-territorial, they don't form part of a diocesan um, structural hierarchy. And so he writes to bishops and archbishops and tells them basically, gently reminds them of their pastoral and sacramental responsibilities to their people and of the benefits of having more diverse approaches that can get into the cracks in society. And he also, I think, seems to be concerned with a dynastic crisis whereby the King of Northumbria, Charles, has been deposed and has had to enter the monastery of Lindisfarne. Um, some of his writings after it was finished in 731 in one copy actually indicate that Bede is, is looking at addressing the, the charges that have left, led to the other faction uh, actually getting rid of Chowulf, who does finally come back to the throne and is more amenable to the idea of having a multifaceted approach. And so, you know, he becomes quite outspoken, but he's always concerned with society. He's always concerned with women and children feature an awful lot in his work, and he always speaks tenderly and with great respect for both. There's also um, the thing about the Dark Ages, of course, you don't hear it so much these days. But shortly before COVID, I was invited to Westminster in London to talk to some senior politicians and civil servants and church people about this early period of the post-Roman period in relation to today in terms of what happens when the infrastructure of the West begins to change significantly and when global economic constructs become shaky or, or in transition. And it was a bit specious. It, we're not in the 5th, 6th century. It's very different now. Having said that, at the end of, of what we presented, one of somebody very senior said to me, well, you're surely not suggesting we're going back to another dark age. I said, well, those of us who study the period don't actually think of it as a dark age any longer. Mm. What was dark was the extent of our knowledge and understanding of what was going on in one of the major dialectic transitional shifts in world history from a Western perspective. And the, what came out of it was something which illuminated the world, which was very, very different. And there was an awful lot of breakdown of structures and an awful lot of loss of life, sadly. But what came out of it was something that produced you know, new expressions, fresh expressions. And the thing that made the difference then was not governmental engenders. It wasn't colonial imperialism. It was ordinary men and women having the fortitude, the perseverance and the hope to actually get out there and make a difference individually and even more importantly, collectively, whether within a monastery or out there in society or the engagement of both, ideally, that you were actually able to turn things around and turn it from a lawless, very bloody an unfair society into something that at least had the semblance and the opportunity to build upon structures to create a more stable society. And of course, what Bede and Aadrith and others envisaged is what might happen even if we can't bring ourselves to achieve it in the present, that there is actually hope that throughout eternity that might be achieved. And that's a brave vision. 
Okay, the book is called Bead and the Theory of Everything by the author, who is our guest today, Michelle Brown. Michelle Brown, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate it greatly. That was Professor Michelle Brown, and now we hear from Adrian Edwards. After he and I talked about Shakespeare's first folio, I asked him this special question. Okay, joining me now is Adrian Edwards, lead curator of the British Library's Printed Heritage Collections. Adrian, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. That's such a fabulous question, isn't it? I've immediately torn between something that I've read before or something new. Mm, And in fact, I've gone for something that I am very familiar with in terms of printing history and as a physical object, but which I have to confess I have never read. And that's... Uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Oh, <laughs> specifically, specifically as printed by William Caxton, and specifically one based on his second edition of 1483. The reason for this is uh, many early texts that, that they, they existed in multiple manuscripts and so forth. So when they came to be printed, the version that the printer got might not be the best one, and that's what happened here. So the first edition that Caxton printed of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. He, he got a manuscript, he edited it, and he printed it, and it was a bestseller. And I'm sure it's wonderful, but I've never read it. But then, whilst that copy was being sold, another manuscript came to light, which was clearly much better, much closer to what Chaucer must actually have written. And he published that as the second edition, and he also had woodcuts made to illustrate each of the stories. And that's sort of the standard version of Chaucer that lots of people know today. And, and that's the one I want to read. I, mm. I, want to, I, want to read I want to read one of those. I, I, I don't mind whether it's original, whether it's a facsimile, but I want to read that 1483 edition. I've looked at it so many times that I've always felt that my reading knowledge of Middle English isn't up to it. Mm. But I think by the time I retire, <laughs> um, I will have tackled this. And I'll be able to sit and read Middle English much better. I'll be able to understand the jokes, understand the references, and get something of the joy that, that people at the time must have got from reading the Canterbury Tales. Right. So that's my choice. <laughs> right. You know, it's a wonderful choice. I, I feel like I've talked to a lot of people and asked them this question, and I've gotten used to you know, hearing such a surprise of uh, a, a science fiction author who ends up choosing something that's completely out of the realm of science fiction or something, and you know, like a <laughs> something that doesn't surprise me at all. I feel like your choice is the perfect choice for the lead curator of the British Library's Printed Heritage Collections. 
Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a, a very good thing. I think it, it means you're the right man for the job. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Adrian Edwards, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. Okay, there you have it. The Venerable Bede in the 8th century and a jump ahead to Chaucer in the 14th. And here we are in the 21st, still going strong. Privileged to be looking back at all of this great literature. My thanks to Michelle P. Brown and to Adrian Edwards for joining me. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>